everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. I'm, of course, your host, Katie Helper. And we have a really fun show for you today. I hope everyone had a good New Year's Eve and is having a good New Year. Just a reminder before we get the show on the road. And of course, we're going to have on repeat guests. I mean, like in a really good way. That makes it sound like, I don't know why I said that way. Friend of the show, great friend of the show, Norman Finkelstein. And also having uh, someone who's making his Katie Helper Show debut, Jamal Muhammad who had a really interesting viral interaction with none other than Zionist rabbi, author, Rabbi Shmuley. Um, but before we start, let's make sure everyone likes the stream. Please subscribe to the channel if you haven't already subscribed. It's a way to help uh, beat the algorithmic suppression of the show. If you can become a Patreon supporter, even at $1 a month, you help make the show happen. And that's at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you give at the higher rate of $5 a month, then you get access to all sorts of great Patreon-only content, extended interviews, uh, bonus interviews. And again, this show is only possible because of people like you who support it on Patreon. Also, hit the like, subscribe. I think that's about it. So we're going to bring on our first guest. Very excited to be talking to this young man. His name is Jamal Muhammad. He is a second-generation Palestinian-American, born and raised in North Carolina. He's the current president of the Arab Student Organization at North Carolina State University and has firsthand witnessed the brutal Israeli occupation and apartheid system during his time in Palestine. So, welcome, Jamal. Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So we're and by the way, if you want to have any Instagram or Twitter handle, you can add that to your to your bio, or I can add it for you. I forgot to tell you that before. Okay, I just want to give you the chance to have uh, to to share whatever you want to share or any website. But um, we're going to uh, before we get into the, a discussion, just so everyone's on the same page, let's show this uh, video of you interacting with Rabbi Shmuley and. Mm-hmm. This is what ra- the rabbi, the good rabbi, this is what he tweeted out when he uh, when he tweeted out uh, about your interaction. He tweeted, I was skating in midtown Manhattan, New York City, when an anti-Semitic, Israel-hating, pro-Hamas thug came over to me on the ice and screamed free Palestine, endangering me as I was on the ice and would not leave me alone. He said, your name is Rabbi Shuli." And you can't expect to simply go around New York and get away with what you're doing to support genocide and apartheid. Watch and see what's happening to Jews all around the United States in general and New York City in particular. Hashtag never again, because obviously never again refers to having someone say free Palestine to you. So let's see uh, what happened. Let me free Palestine on the ice. On the ice. Really? That's the only thing you can think of? Harassing me on the ice? And Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. You came over to me and said free Palestine, Palestine on the ice. What's your name? Yeah. 
You don't even know my name. Why? What are you afraid of? I'm not afraid this of is going to be everywhere anyway. Good. You came over to me on the ice and brought and, and harassed me with free and Palestine. I said free Palestine. And I gave you a fist bump. And you don't want to. Now you're recording me. You are, you are saying free Palestine knowing that it's an anti-Semitic slur to destroy Israel. Not at all. So you don't want to destroy Israel. No, why would I want to destroy people? So what do you want? Free Free Palestine. Palestine. What about from what? The liberation of people. You mean from Hamas, who are the no. terrorists? I want to liberate killed, people. So you're okay, I want the freedom of people. Okay I want the end to a genocide. So okay. I want the end to he's a genocide. He's harassing me. 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 He's harassing Thank you for skating. Apartheid, huh? Of America, Winter Village. So you came over and you want a fist bump, and then you start telling me that Israel's an apartheid. Why are you harassing me? I just said you started recording me. Why? But why are you harassing me on the ice? Because you are very pro genocide, apartheid, a fascist state. Oh. So when I see you in person, I want to tell you my opinion. So we're on the ice. We're on the ice. We're on the ice in a public space. You can't. This is a public space. So you expect me. Yeah, it's a public space. What What's this on the ice? Did he, like, have a, some kind of traumatic experience on the ice once? I don't know what the deal is. I guess, like, you can say free Palestine anywhere but on the ice. Right. But I don't know why he was so hooked on, like, it being I know. on the ice. It was so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and and here's what happened. So he does that. He tweets it out. He he looks like an idiot. But, of course, he has a um, a very friendly media to do his the dirty work not for him, but with him. And so uh, what happens next? Oh, before we get to the media, sorry, one more tweet, because he really is, is yeah, milking no, this was, for all he, he, for all he has. Here yeah. he is reflecting on what happened. Yeah. I was just ice skating in New York City when, if you watch the video, two Israel hater anti-Semites, pro-Hamas, I guess the Palestinian, I don't know, they both just said, free Palestine. And I said, why, why are you saying that to me while I'm skating? You could hurt me. And they said, free Palestine. And I said, why are you saying that? They said, aren't you Rabbi by Shmuley? You have no right to do an, a pro-genocide, pro-partide thing. You're not going to be harassed. Then the, then the people who run the skating ring came over and made us both leave the ice. And this is astonishing what's happening here in the community. You are, sorry, happening in New York City. The anti-Semitism, the hatred, the harassment. He's a pro-genocide murder of civilians, disgusting, vile people, and it's happening all over. You have to watch the videos. He's crazy. He's he so is, crazy. He's insane. And then here's how it was picked up, of course, by uh, Breitbart. Rabbi Shmuley Boteak harassed by anti-Israel activists while skating in NYC. Wow. All right. So tell us about this experience and, and what made you say the anti-semitic slur that is free palestine. palestine yeah yeah so i was in new jersey for the for the break for the holidays and we ended up going to bryant park to ice skate with some family members and my cousins and as we're skating um i notice you know rabbi shmurley has his headphones in he's just chilling he's ice skating and i'm like is that rabbi shmurley is that rabbi shmurley and i realized it's rabbi shmurley so you know he goes, he's online spewing, you know, he's an unapologetic, you know, genocidal propagandist for Israel. You know, what he says is directly linked to the children dying in, in Palestine right now. So seeing that, you know, 
I can't just, you know, let him, you know, I had, I just, I had to say my piece to him. I had to let him know. Um, I didn't think, you know, he should be, you know, skating around all fun, you know, and saying all these things. So I just wanted to let him know my opinion. I went up to him very peacefully. I went up there very peacefully. I just kind of said, you know, free Palestine, like right next to him. I just said, yeah, free Palestine. I offered him a fist bump. And then he kind of like, he kind of started off nice. He was like, you know, why would you say that to me? Why would you say that? And he pulled out his phone, knowing it's an anti-Semitic slur to kill all the Israelis. And, so, and I was like, whoa, what is happening? Like he was going crazy. Um, and he just got he, got, he got super aggressive. And after he started doing that, I kind of realized what he was trying to do. He was trying to make me look, he was trying to get me to say something. Uh, he was trying to scare me. He wanted to know my name. You know, why are you scared? Why are you scared? I'm not scared. I just wanted to, you know, free Palestine. But I was genuinely hoping to have like a conversation or just to like hear something from him. Granted, because I recognized him from like Piers Morgan and, you know, and what and everything he said. But yeah, I was, I was curious. I just wanted to let him know that, you know, we see him and we know he's there. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to let him know free Palestine, see what he would say. But I, I mean, and then the second video you saw, he ends up going to like the, the corner of the ice and he's kind of minding his business. And I see him put on glasses and he's on his phone, something, somebody's on his phone. And I'm chilling. I'm ready. I'm about to leave the ice. And then he comes around, comes back around to me. I see him. I was like, I know he's going to stop, but I was, I didn't say anything. And he came around and he said like apartheid. Yeah. And when I saw that video, he never had his phone out in his hand. And then we came to the conclusion that, and after I downloaded the video from Twitter, I realized it's in a, in a smaller uh, format that he was recording from his glasses. So he had a camera in his glasses and he was trying to try his hardest to get me to say something so he can post it online and like paint this perspective of him being the victim so he can use it, you know, against the, the Palestinian movement. Right. And yeah, I just think it's insane. So sneaky. And yet he yeah. still couldn't get you because you didn't Basically. say anything remotely problematic. You didn't say anything that is, is anyone would be embarrassed of. Yeah. I mean, well, we know that, you know, in the movement of the Palestinians is looked under like a magnifying glass. So right. Anything we say, anything we do, it's double checked to like the next level to the extreme. So right. I, you know, I can't, we can't go around, you know, saying the things he says online. He can go and say, you know, don't stop the genocide. You know, he's, he's, he's producing speech to induce violence and hate and he's never checked, but, you know, saying free Palestine. Now I'm being checked. I'm somehow a pro Hamas thug, pro gang rape. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And meanwhile, you, I mean, it's, you're so not, I mean, again, you look very wholesome, not to, it's not about how you look, but you happen to be very like, you're young and, and very wholesome in what you're saying and doing. And like, it's so far from what he's trying to present you as. Yeah. Luckily I, I was completely like the opposite of the perspective he was trying to paint. So I was like, I don't think that's Rabbi, I don't agree with this. He doesn't look like that at all. And then it really worked out. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us what uh, free Palestine means for you and why this is an important issue for you. Yeah, I mean, I think free Palestine itself is like, well, obviously the, the movement that's happening right now, the Palestinian people are going through, you know, oppression. There's a current genocide going on right now. But, you know, free Palestine is, is allowing people to have basic human rights. You know, you know, allowing people to access the resources, allowing people to drive wherever they want, you know, allowing people that are five minutes away from, you know, a place that has the most religious standing, like, you know, Elok's Mosque and the other uh, religious things, religious churches, allowing people to go to those places without having to worry about apartheid walls or being stopped. Um, allowing people to come in and out of their country. You know, even now, I feel like 
you know, what's going on. I just blew up. I probably won't be able to go back and visit. I feel like they're going to stop me in the airport. Um, they're going to see everything I'm saying. Um, giving the people the right to return to their land, things like that. Stopping people from occupying land that people live in, you know, in the West Banks. You know, settlers shouldn't be taking people's houses. I think a free Palestine is, you know, a lot, literally allowing the Palestinian people to live normal human lives. And what is your relationship to Palestine? Yeah, so I'm Palestinian. Um, I was born in the U.S. Um, and uh, yeah, I was born here. My mom was born in New Jersey. My dad was born in Venezuela, but both of my grandparents are from the West Bank. So I have a family and uncles in the West Bank. Um, and yeah, I visited Palestine multiple times. I've seen, I've seen the checkpoints. I've seen the Israeli soldiers. I've been to Jerusalem. I've seen how they march around. You know, you kind of just keep your head down and hope they don't mess with you. Um, that's kind of the, the biggest thing. And also like the relationship I have to the free Palestine movement itself is, you know, I want my kids to see that free Palestine. I think it's more than just liberating the people of Palestine. I think, you know, once you, once we, once the people, it's, it's a people's movement versus the political elites, I feel like at this point. So to me, if we're able to, you know, continue with this movement, we can see a free Congo, we can see a free Sudan. You know, it's, it's more than just a free Palestine. I feel like it's, it's the people showing what they truly want and the people fighting for liberation. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it, I should have said this earlier, but it makes sense that one of the things that uh, Shmuley, Rabbi Shmuley supports, among many things, is, this, is the settlements, Israeli settlements. So he's not just supportive of the occupation, but uh, settlements. And uh, he once referred to residents of the Hebron, Hebron settlement as uh, having great warmth, friendliness, and hospitality, uh, and views liberated from hatred. And um, he was, of course, supportive of Trump uh, and called him the most pro-Israel president in history. Um, so, and tell us more about what you observed in Palestine. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess touching on the Rabbi Shmuley thing, I think real quick is that I, like he just completely spews hate, racism against the Palestinian people. I mean, even those occupants, like it's known by like almost every accredited source that those that the occupied West Bank is occupied, those settlements are illegal. Right. So to back that up, even especially that there's no Hamas in the West Bank either. Right. So you don't even have the all, excuse of yeah. Exactly. There's no excuse other than that you want land and you just want, you know, to make the policy. You just want that, you want the West, you want the West Bank. Um but while I was in Pal- I mean, I luckily, you know, I have an American passport, so I don't go through you know, even a slight amount of what people go through and um, the people that live in the West Bank, the occupied West Bank. So luckily I didn't see too much. I did, was, you know, I saw the soldiers and I saw, you could tell that there, it's clearly an apartheid state, but I think I, a lot of stories throughout my family, like my two older sisters, they went to high school in, uh, in Palestine for a year or two. And they, you know, they've had soldiers come in uh, to the house in the middle of the night. They pull them out their beds. They're like in their underwear. And they're talking about, you know, we're, we're going to take them home with us. These are Israeli girls. You know, they want to come home with us. And luckily, they're like, okay, they have pig's blood on them because the American passport. So they end up, they were saved by the American passport. But it's it's normal that, you know, in the West Bank, and it's not talked about enough, that people come in, the IOS soldiers will come in at night, and they'll they'll literally take people just because. Just because. So it's, it's uh, you know, look, I'm, I have the privilege to live here. Right? I have the privilege to not live in occupied West, in occupied territory. 
But, you know, the, it's not talked about enough that the people in the West Bank are, and the people of all Palestine are, are they're, the IOF solely makes their life miserable. So, I, I mean, you, you see it throughout, you know, when you're there, you see the car rides that would normally take five minutes now take two hours because you have to go through checkpoints or you can't just drive through normally. Um, yeah. Yeah. The da- there's just this, I mean, daily built-in humiliation. Yeah. Yeah. Besides, I mean, obviously then there's killing. Um, oh, yeah. But even when it's not as dramatic, it's um, built-in daily humiliation and, you know, institutionalized violence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Every, their sole goal is to make the people lose their spirits, right? I think the people at the West Bank, they're solely like at the mercy from what we've heard and what and uh, we've had, a, we have a couple of friends tell us that if whatever they're trying to do is solely at the mercy of the IOF soldiers' um, view on that on that day. So if they're having a good day. And IOF, they, by the way, is the Israeli Occupation Forces. Occupation is, Forces, yeah, yeah. Instead of yeah. IDF, which is what IDF. they call themselves, but. That's yeah. what people mean when they say IOF. Yeah. Yeah. They're not defending themselves at all from anything. They're right. in the, always in the offensive. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the simple things like, you know, it's, they're completely at the mercy of these soldiers. Uh, and I, luckily with, you know, I'm American, so I don't witness it, but these are all, you know, firsthand account stories that I'm hearing. But like, if they want to go pray in Jerusalem, you know, if the IOF soldiers having a good day, they're in, if they're having a bad day, go home. Right. It's there. Everything, everything is controlled, you know, the water, food, electricity. I mean, I remember when I was in, when I was in Palestine, I had to use a bucket, you know, of boiling water to wash. Cause sometimes they'll turn the electricity off, you know, and then they have the jugs on the ceilings, the jugs on the, on the roofs, uh, the water reserves. So when they turn electricity off, uh, you know, my mom, her, her uncle had a well and she talked about like how amazing the water was and she loved everything about it. And they, they poisoned the well when they were taking the land. Yeah. She's like, it was like, she, she brags about how amazing the water was when she was drinking it. And, and back when she, she used to visit Palestine, but yeah, they I mean, they poison the wells and they have complete control of, of every aspect of life. And they try to take away, you know, every tiny thing of life. This is just in the West Bank. This is not even talking about, you know, the absolute atrocities that are happening in Gaza today. Overall, I mean, I've always had a deep connection to the issue. My mom's always talked about it. Uh, she raised me on this. Uh, she raised me to be an activist. And I think it's important that we don't stop talking about it. I think it's important that we see, you know, Palestine as a whole. I think the media is trying to paint Gaza, Gaza, Gaza. And it's what's happening there is clearly a genocide. But I think the Palestinian people as a whole are, should be, you know, liberated. It's, 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 it's a move into liber- the liberation of, of the Palestinian people. I have, sorry, I keep, I. No, go on. Oh, I was going to say also, like, I see in the video of Rabbi Shmuley, he was like, freedom from Hamas. And um, yeah. I just want you to know that, no, freedom from the Israeli occupation, I think that was important. I wasn't really listening because I was ice skating, but right. I wanted, I wanted to but clear that up. But you did say too. no when he said that. I did a, say no. Yeah, I did say that no. People try to use. Yeah, he was just yeah. he was just throwing things out there, trying to get me to trip up on something. But yeah, I wanted to clarify that too. Right. Um, and uh, have you faced any kind of prejudice, bigotry, hatred over things that you've said about Palestine or over being Palestinian? I no personally, I have not. Um, I mean, you see it going around. I'm a little afraid to wear my kofia, you know, after the kids in Vermont. Um, yeah, that was Shot. very yeah. tragic. Yeah, but you know, I mean, a lot of the protests will have Israeli people come up and they'll try. Some of them are aggressive, some of them less aggressive. Uh, like we had a protest at NC State, and we had a couple people come up to us, like, 
what you're doing is anti-Semitic and this is that. And, you know, he actually came back and talked to us and we were able to, you know, provide him with like sources to look at and documentaries and it worked out well. So I think, you know, we have to know that we uphold like a standard. So when these people try to be aggressive to us, we can be calm and we, we know that what we're standing up for is the truth. So we can be calm and we don't have to play into what they're trying to do, I think is, is the biggest part. And what kind of work do you do with the, the Arab student organization? Yeah, I mean, so like once everything happened, we knew we had to start doing things around campus. Um, we have a freedom expression tunnel. We were, you know, putting Palestinian flags, putting facts, putting things there. We held a vigil for the life's lost. So we had a couple of speakers come up, some speakers from Gaza um, that have family in Gaza. Uh, and then we had, a, so we had a bunch of people over there for the vigil. We also had a bake sales where we were you know, selling cookies and brownies for, for the people in Gaza. We donated to PCRF. And then we had two protests. So one protest we just had on campus. And the other protest, we, um, it was a symbolized walk from our bell tower to the Raleigh capital. Um, they did that walk, and I believe it was in the 1960s for Cambodia, for the war in Cambodia. Mm. Yeah, so kind of like a, a parallel to anti-war um, kind of kind of kind of walk there yeah so we've, we've been right. doing a couple of things i think next semester uh we're we're gonna do more great a, a callback callback yeah and what else do you want people to know about uh palestine about what a free palestine means for you anything else that you want people you know people like to claim that it's anti-semitic to say free palestine obviously no one on who watches the show believes that but but what do you have to say to those claims yeah, I mean, I think what, you know, the Israeli propaganda is trying to do is do everything in their possibility to take away sympathy from the Palestinians. So if it's victimizing themselves, if it's calling out like chants that have never been called out, like from the river to the sea, that's solely for the liberation of the Palestinian people. If they will do anything in their way to take away sympathy from the Palestinian people, um, I think we have to, you know, see through the propaganda, see through the lies and stay strong. I think you know, uh, there's a big chant going around right now. It's like, we will free Palestine in our lifetime. And that one kind of stands with me because, you know, I hope my mother gets to see a free Palestine so we can go back and we can enjoy Palestine. But I really want my kids to enjoy a free Palestine. And I know I have friends that are from Gaza and they'll never be able to return to their childhood homes. So it means a ton to us as a Palestinian people. And I think it should mean a lot to everybody. Um, to, like I think lies are being exposed. Everything is being exposed now. So it's 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 this is a movement of the people, um, mm-hmm. and it, it just showcases a lot that you know if we stand together, we can truly get like a, 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 the proper liberation and, and the justice that people deserve around the world. Great. Well, thank you so much. Any final words? Anything you wanted to make sure our audience hears from you? I mean, keep on educating yourself. Keep on posting. You know, tell your friends. Um, you know, if you see like a politician or, you know, someone that spreads hate, a very simple, nonviolent little fist bump, free Palestine, you know, let them know we're here. Let them know that we, we see them. We know what they're, we, we know what they're doing. Um, and yeah, I guess, uh, free Palestine. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on and come back on. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, whenever you want me, I'm, I'm here. Great. You can be our North Carolina stringer or North Carolina correspondent. Will do. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, that was great. So guys, we're going to bring on our next guest as soon as we get the thumbs up from him. 
Um, but uh, make sure you like the stream, please. If you haven't already, please subscribe. Please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That, again, uh, was Jamal Muhammad. Uh, love talking to him. He did a great job uh, not not taking the bait from Rabbi Shmuley when he was confronted on the ice. As I tweeted, Rabbi Shmuley acted like he had just fled Kristallnacht on ice. Um, and... We are going to bring in our next guest, and he almost doesn't need an, an introduction, but I'll give him an introduction. Norman Finkelstein is a political scientist, prolific author, and the son of Holocaust survivors. He receives his PhD from the Princeton University Politics Department. He's the author of many books that have been translated into 60 foreign editions, including The Holocaust Industry, Reflections on the Exploitation of Jewish Suffering, and Gaza, an Inquest into Its Martyrdom. I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom is his latest book. In the year 2020, Norman Finkelstein was named the fifth most influential political scientist in the world. So, without any further ado, welcome, Norman. Hi, Miss Candy. How are you? Good. You? Oh, I've seen better lights. How was your New Year's Eve party? It was great, thank you. Yes, I had a New Year's Eve party and I invited Norman, but he thought that, well, you thought... I thought I, that... I, I, I throw very intergenerational parties. I thought that we didn't want to ruin the party by some of the attendees plotting before the ball plots. Right. It's, it's funny, some of the older attendees left before the ball plots, but no one plots before the ball plots. That's part of being an older attendee. Right. And it, and Norman, just do I happy? I saw you on your actual birthday when you spoke with Cornell West, but we haven't wished you a uh, happy birthday officially from the Katie Helper show. So happy belated birthday. Well, that and my senior citizen card will get me on the subway. Yeah. There you go. Thank you so much. So I uh, wanted to talk to you. I guess the, uh, we could start with the most breaking news, which is that, as people probably know, Claudine Gay, who was the president of Harvard, has stepped down following a congressional hearing that was uh, presided over by Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. We actually have a clip of uh, Elise Stefanik. Brad, do we have that ready, that YouTube clip? We will. Uh, just to refresh people's memories, a uh, uh, of the kind of questioning that Claudine Gay uh, suffered through at the hands of uh, Elise Stefanik. So let's take a look. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When and it is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes. 
that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. And of course, the calls for genocide that Stefanik is referring to are things like from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free and intifada. Mm -hmm. And uh, the president of Penn resigned and now uh, Claudine Gay has resigned and people, of course, are celebrating. And Stefanik said two down, as in two people have resigned so far. So what are your thoughts on on this? And of course, the the pretext for for having her forcing her to uh, resign is allegations of plagiarism. But it's pretty clear that that's not what this is truly about. There are many things to be said, and it's hard for me to um, engage all of them. Let me give some random thoughts, and then you can press me on this or that point. Number one, I think people are unfamiliar with our own history of freedom of speech. Uh, in the United States, unlike most of the world, we have very wide parameters for freedom of speech. So take, for example, uh, Congressperson Stefanik is outraged that uh, Claudine Gay, President Gay at the time, President Gay said it depends on context. Now, just imagine the following. If somebody were to say, if she were to say, Claudine, excuse me, uh, Congressperson Stefanik, if she were to have interrogated somebody in this congressional hearing and said, yes or no, should it be allowed to call for the overthrow of our government? Yes or no, should it be allowed to call for the overthrow of the government? And President Gay said, it all depends on the context. And then Stefanik responds, are you saying that it's okay to call for the overthrow of the government? And she says, it depends on the context. And then Stefanik says, and that's why all of you in this room should be forced to resign. Well, guess what? Brace yourself. Under our Supreme Court jurisprudence, you're allowed to call for the overthrow of our government. It was a long history, uh, beginning really at the beginning of the 20th century, when all of these cases came up with the Wobblies, the anarchists, the Communist Party, calling for the violent overthrow of the government. And our Supreme Court ruled that there is a certain benefit to freedom of speech, even if it calls for things like the overthrow of your government, because they said, you should listen. Why do they want to overthrow the government? What's their reasons? Okay? You should hear them out. And so the jurisprudence basically came down to if the call but the overthrow of the government was very close to action, to the actual overthrow, then it becomes prohibited. 
but short of that proximity or propinquity to actual action, it's permissible. Now, a lot of people will find that utterly outrageous. But what President Gay was articulating is the consensus opinion from the Supreme Court cases. Now, let's say Stefanik asked the president, should you be allowed to belong to an organization that thinks that African-Americans or Jews, let's take Jews, that Jews are evil. Should you be allowed to belong to an organization that believes Jews are evil? And she says, well, it all depends on the organization and whether they're doing anything violent or actionable. And then Stefanik grandstands again. And she says, and that's why you and your fellow college presidents should lose their jobs. Well, guess what? In the United States, the Nazi party is legal. The Ku Klux Klan is legal. When I was growing up, we all knew the leader of the U.S. Nazi party. His name was George Lincoln Rockwell. He was eventually assassinated. But these were, and believe me, this is pretty shortly after World War II I'm talking about. And still, it was simply a recognized aspect of our society. Some would say, myself included, for the better, that we have few restrictions on freedom of speech, and we have very wide parameters for freedom of speech. So President Gay was correct, but people don't know what is exactly the, uh, according to Supreme Court decisions, what are the parameters for freedom of speech? Now, I would say, I would say that on a college campus, as against Times Square, on a college campus, you could say, when you cross the threshold of a college campus, you have kind of uh, signed an agreement. The agreement is, you are here to pursue truth. Okay? And you have to listen to things you don't like, because, as we all know from the adage, truth is a bitter pill to swallow, is often a bitter pill to swallow. So you have to accept that you're going to hear things that you don't like, because in the pursuit of truth, number one, we don't know who's right and who's wrong as we pursue truth. And number two, we may reach a conclusion based on the process of pursuing truth that you don't like. Maybe, you know, you're a born-again Christian, and you do not like the notion that we evolved from apes. You just don't like that. That's a painful... Sometimes people, especially these liberal elitists, they don't, or I should say secular elitists, they don't realize how painful certain propositions that they promote might be for others. If you are a strict Catholic and you 
hear a professor promote the virtues of, of abortion and call anybody who is anti-abortion, backward, reactionary, and all the other epithets. If you're a born again Christian, you have to tolerate that. And that's not so easy to tolerate. We don't, I don't think, have, especially liberal secularists, they have no historic, they have no moral imagination, no moral imagination. They can't imagine that somebody else could legitimately, legitimately harbor beliefs with which you disagree. And so that's one aspect of this, you know, quid pro quo of going to college. Have to listen to things you don't like. Okay. Now, there is another aspect, in my opinion. Now I'm speaking strictly from my opinion. So far, I've talked about, you know, generalities. Everybody knows these are commonplaces. Miss Stefanik, go to your uh, directory and look up in U.S. Nazi Party. It's legal in the United States. Go look up Ku Klux Klan, legal in the United States. Okay? Commonplaces. Now, as a matter of fact, as of course you know, one of the big cases in freedom of speech was Nazis marching through Skokie. The Skokie Nazi party is illegal. Now, you may not want to hear that, but that's our jurisprudence, which, as I say, speaking for myself, I think is a good thing. You know? Now, as I said, I would enter personally one qualification. The qualification is, on a college campus, you have an obligation to pursue truth. I would say, from my point of view, and this is not the ACLU position, what happened to President McGill, and now McGill, and now um, Claudine Gay, it's the biggest assault on academic freedom in our history. in one regard, since the beginning of the 19th century. So allow me to explain what I mean by that. The whole issue of academic freedom in our country, it first arose at the end of the 19th and the early 20th century. It was when the robber barons were running amok on the one hand, and it was the emergence of the workers' movement uh, to resist the uh, gross, egregious exploitation. So what happened? The robber barons, they're very rich, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, and they play a big role in higher education because they're endowing it. These are private schools, just like today. And some professors, some professors, a few, a handful, were supporting the workers. And the robber barons wanted that speech from the faculty, not students, from the faculty. They wanted that speech stifled. There were two base, two major cases. Um, uh, they'll come to me in a moment, the, the names. In Attic, uh, one was Ross and the other was, oh God, I knew the guy. He'll come to me. In any case, that was the struggle to restrict the influence of big money in academia. 
the robber barons were trying to stifle uh, free speech or academic freedom, were trying to stifle academic freedom. And that's when, in our history, the whole tradition of academic freedom emerged. It was the AAUP, the American Association of University Presidents. No, uh, professors, excuse me, American Association of University Professors, AAUP. And um, very impressive minds, first among them, John Dewey, they wrote up a whole series of principles on academic freedom in order to try to preempt the big business, uh, the, the robber barons from determining what's taught in college. Now, the most essential principle of academic freedom is very simple. Couldn't be more simple. It's that professors are in the best position to judge who is and who isn't qualified to teach, that it shouldn't be determined by robber barons, and it shouldn't be determined by religious, I'll use the word, if I'm, not, uh, I'm not so comfortable with it. It shouldn't be religious bigots who decide. It shouldn't be robber barons who decide. It's only your peers who decide. A, if a professor wants to teach physics, the most qualified to judge the competence of that professor to teach physics is... I think you can fill in the blank. Who is most qualified to judge who should teach physics? Should it be religious elders? Should it be robber barons? Or should it be other physicists? Probably the latter, the, the third yeah. option. Yeah. yeah, pretty obvious. And you have, with that answer, you have struck gold. That is the essential position, excuse me, the essential, the core of academic freedom. And further, as a development of that, is the um, principle of faculty self-government, that the faculty are the most competent and qualified to determine what should be the university's agenda, distribution of departments, um, you know, you got defining a university, defining right. the internal life of a university. It's called faculty self-governance. That's why every university has a faculty senate. <laughs> That's how it works. Now, there was another major interference in academic freedom, of course, McCarthyism. But McCarthyism was the political interference by the state in determining who teaches and who doesn't, the anti-communist hysteria. But the nearest analog to what just happened is what happened with the robber barons. However, on a much higher scale, it is unthinkable, unthinkable, that a president of a university would be overthrown by big money. Impossible 
we are talking about the presidents of the most prestigious institutions in our country, Harvard, U of T, and MIT. We're not talking about Hodong Community College. The idea that this Jewish billionaire class can steamroll a president of Harvard is so breathtaking. Now remember, I never made it in academia and I have no love loss with academia. But I do agree with President McGill when she said, if this happens, namely her being forced to resign, it's going to be a huge blow to our academic life. A huge blow. It means the billionaire class gets to decide, if they can decide who's president, they get to decide everything. It's the end of academic freedom. It's the end of faculty self-governance. It's the end of peers deciding rather than some billionaire thug who, you know what Balzac famously said, the novelist, behind every great fortune is a crime. So this billionaire criminal class will now determine Every, if they can determine the president, they can determine every facet of university life. This was an utter catastrophe. And I'm speaking as somebody who was never, uh, there was never lo any love lost between me and academia, but I get what's happening. I get what a ghastly president, president it is. And I've talked to many student organizations, including at U of P and at Harvard, and I've said, your first demand when school resumes, McGill has to be restored. And that should be the first demand at Harvard. Claudine Gay has to be restored. Because if you don't restore her, you've set a ghastly precedent. And you will be, you will be the alumni of a generation of students that allowed for the uh, uh, stifling, really the end, it's the end of academic freedom. It is. I mean, that may sound dramatic, but on that point, I agreed with McGill. She said, if this happens, it's the end. Of a, a gang of billionaires decided we're getting rid of him, her. As to the plagiarism, okay, if you maybe we'll just leave okay. The issue of plagiarism aside for a moment, and you can question me on what I just said. But hasn't there been a precedent of people, especially when they are uh, go against conventional wisdom or go against the grain on Israel-Palestine, of being fired? Look, obviously there have been cases. I'm quite intimately familiar <laughs> with one of them. There's a very big difference between... Pressure being brought to bear to get rid of a faculty. Remember, uh, Katie, 
in my day, when I say my day, I'm talking about 15 years ago. That was always done very discreetly behind the scenes. Okay. So it's like, it's, not, it's the, it's the brazenness of it. Now. <laughs> it's not as if people came out and said, uh, he's uh, pro-Palestine, get rid of him. No, they never said that. They said things like, you know, I was not, con- I was not a, um, a, um, a congenial scholar. I, I, I was, you know, too much with the verbal fisticuffs. That was the grounds for, for uh, getting rid of me. The idea that, first of all, I was a nobody. And let's be for real. You know, I, I had a tiny reputation. But this is going after the president of our college. It's so, and it, totally in the open, totally brazen. You get rid of her? Or I'm taking back a hundred million dollars. That's not small change. You get rid of her. I'm getting taking back fifty million dollars. At Columbia, all of a sudden, the president got this genial idea: let's open up a center for the fight fight against anti-Semitism. Really, we really need that. We have Israel studies already. We have Holocaust studies already. Now we need a new center to fight anti-Semitism. You know. You can get already a, a, a degree in Jewish naval contemplation. How much do you need? A JNC. <laughs> yeah, right. a JNC. Jewish studies, Israel studies, Holocaust studies, anti-Semitism studies. And these are all bones just thrown to the rich alumni. These, these departments have no contact, content. You know why Israel studies was formed? It was formed because in the Middle East Studies Association, MESA, a consensus gradually crystallized supporting the Palestinians. So the pro-Israel folks realized it's a lost cause to fight the battle in Middle East studies. So what did they do? They just created a new propaganda discipline called Israel studies. Why, Why do you have a whole discipline about one country? It's 14 million people. Do we have Botswana studies? Do we have uh, Guinea-Bissau studies? It's just bones they throw. So she decided to throw a new bone with the um, uh, Center for the Study of Anti-Semitism. So I I agree. People have been penalized, but it was always done with a certain amount of discretion. And now it's just done with sheer brightness. Sure, 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 thuggery, you know, really. Uh, it's, a, it's a sight to behold. It really is. Uh, J.A. Savage writes, Bill Ackman, a Harvard alumni, is a Jewish billionaire hedge fund manager of Pershing Square Capital Management, now worth $4.5 billion. He's, of course, was very vocal about, about this. There were quite a few, huge amounts of money. Yeah. You know, I can understand. If you know anything about academia... The main job of a university president has nothing to do with academics. It's to raise money. Their job is fundraising. So you can imagine what a liability these professors were once the billionaire class said, we're pulling our money. Well, speaking of academic freedom and academic conduct, one of the people who was very happy about Gay resigning is someone with whom you have an interesting relationship, none other than Alan Dershowitz. He has a piece up at his Substack today called 
Harvard Prez Claudine Gay's exit is just the first step in saving our universities. I want to play a clip of him on a Newsmax show responding to the uh, to the news about Gay. Professor Emeritus of Harvard Law School and the author of the new book, War Against the Jews, How to End Hamas Barbarism. Alan Dershowitz joins us this evening. Pleasure to have you in as always, sir. Thank you. Well, you know, a Harvard professor about 10 years ago lost uh, tenure, was fired, had to go to a different university mm. because he refused to turn over uh, data as well. Uh, academics are obliged to turn over their data for peer scrutiny. And when an academic refuses to turn over the underlying data, that raises a red flag as to whether she has something to hide. So I think Harvard Why has she been able to skirt by all this, that it does seem like that. And even we've learned, Professor Dershowitz, when they learned about her plagiarism, it was before the disastrous congressional yeah. testimony, and they hired defamation attorneys as if they were prepared to defend it. It finally leaked out uh, a month later, but she seems to be getting a lot of passes here. Do you believe it's uh, influenced maybe with President Obama? Well, no, I think it's influenced by diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, which gives favoritism to certain groups based on uh, equity. Look, she's not the only um, black intellectual who's being given a double standard. Take, for example, the woman whose movie is now uh, the largest uh, grossing opening movie on, on, on Christmas, Alice Walker. She has a history of being a rampant anti-Semite. Uh, she has mm. encouraged people to read books by people who have been Holocaust deniers and supporters of Hitler and supporters of, uh, of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. But she gets a pass. I think today under DEI, if you're black and you're an intellectual, you have a double standard applied uh, to you. If a white author uh, had uh, written a great book, um, um, as The Color Purple is, but had been revealed as a virulent anti-black racist or white supremacist, Nobody yes. would have directed this film like Spielberg did. Nobody would have put it on in the movies. So we are seeing closer to home the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism, double standards applied to African-American people who are not uh, sufficiently uh, uh, tough on anti-Semitism. And we're seeing a double standard applied in plagiarism as well. So this is, this is Harvard ought to change its motto from Veritas Truth to double standard. Because we've seen the double standard on plagiarism, the double standard. Um, uh, she in, she discovered free speech when it came I, to hate speech. News. She never yeah, I mean, it, well, we know you have a lot okay, of pull there, so let's see I, uh, what happens. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, it's done. Yeah, um, I do hope this particular interview with you will get a wide audience because there's you know my late mother used to say. It's no accident that Jews invented the word chutzpah. And as you know, the title of uh, uh, Alan Dershowitz's so-called autobiography was chutzpah. Actually, the title of my book about him was Beyond Chutzpah. So let's look at the facts. You know, my stomach begins to churn when I listen to this. When I debated him on democracy now, I did become convinced in the course of our exchange that he hadn't written the book that he was alleged to have 
authored. And I made that clear. I kept telling, saying the book you claim to have written. Because there was no way he could not have known certain content of the book, his own book, I'm not talking about my book, his own book, without, if he had written, read it. Right. So, he, uh, uh, written it, excuse me. No, I'm saying if he had, if he had even read it. Oh, okay, got it. I, yeah. I didn't believe Let he Let alone read written it, yeah. Right. So, he, ref he claimed to refute me by saying, I have the handwritten version of the book I wrote. Okay, I said, let me see it. I'd be curious to see it. Now, Claudine Gay is accused of withholding evidence uh, allegedly against her, okay, against her interest. I asked him, let me see it. I'm curious. I'd like to look through it. He never passed it on to me. Now, I made another charge during that debate. I said that he was guilty of very significant plagiarism. What happened with that charge? You allow me a little history, okay? I leveled the charge, and several people were a little disappointed in me because they said that wasn't the core of his egregiousness. The core was fabricating this whole history of Israeli human rights. And that we should have focused on the human rights issue rather than the plagiarism issue. Because plagiarism is a peculiar a peculiarity of academia, to which I'll return in a moment. So when I published the book, I included the whole plagiarism issue in an appendix. Now, Alan Dershowitz says that, what, are you, what, what was she afraid of? Why didn't she want to return over the evidence against her or the evidence of uh, her constructing her manuscript? What happened with me? What happened was Alan Dershowitz did everything in his power to suppress that appendix. Here are some of the things he did. The book was published by University of California Press. So it was technically under the um, California Board of Regents. A member of the Board of Regents is the governor, who at that time was Arnold Schwarzenegger. President Dershowitz went to Schwarzenegger to suppress that appendix. Did you hear what he said about President Gay? How she was suppressing evidence against her? He went to suppress the publication, to block the publication of the book by University of California Press. Now, Mr. Dershowitz, if you happen to watch this at some point, we have the letter that you wrote. Okay, what did he do next? He said to the Boston Globe that if the University of California Press publishes that book, I will own that company. He will bankrupt it. That's what he told. That's 
word for word, I will own that company. What did he do next? He wrote a letter to the University of California Press. I have a copy. It's actually part of one of my folders in my Gmail. I kept it. He said, quote, I'm quoting word for word. He wrote to the University of California Press. Or his lawyer was one of these white shoe law firms. It was obviously he was doing everything and the lawyer was just a cover, a fig leaf. He said, quote, if you don't remove the appendix now, it will be a very painful operation later. Just like a mafia. Yeah. You know, take out the appendectomy, uh, the pipes and break the kneecaps. Right. If you don't remove the appendix now, it's going to be a very painful operation later. Now, you listen to what he said about her trying to withhold evidence. Mr. Dershowitz, really, there is a limit. During the first intifada, there was a group in Israel to support the Palestinians because the Israelis were beating brutally the kids. And the group was called Yesh Gavul, which translated as there is a limit. Mr. Dershowitz, Yesh Gavul. There is a limit, really. You are accusing her of suppressing evidence? Now, two last things. Number one, a federal judge, excuse me, state Supreme Court judge, Frank Menetres. He was curious about the whole case. He's not a radical. He's a very good legal scholar. He was he had a PhD in philosophy, and he had at UCLA. And I think he graduated. Uh, I think he graduated first in his class in University of UCLA Law School, or he was the editor of the uh, Law Review, UCLA Law Review. Very very smart guy. Actually, every year he sends me a card with his uh, pictures of his family. He was not a radical. He was just curious. And if you allow me to get up for another minute. So, in the paperback version of my book, Beyond Chutzpah, there is a, um, just allow me. There is a appendix that runs from pages 363 to 394, 31 pages, microscopic print, microscopic font, and it's entitled Dershowitz, Dershowitz versus Finkelstein. Who's right and who's wrong? And he just goes through the record meticulously. And he concludes there can't be any doubt Dershowitz is guilty of plagiarism. There can't be any question about that. So, um, why did he get away with it? (laughs) The same reason 
President Gay almost got away with it, which is to say the whole system is rigged for the powerful. Nobody wants to mess with Alan Dershowitz. He's the senior most professor at Harvard Law School. So they gave him a pass. You know, uh, if you'll forgive me for um, referring to your, uh, your, uh, one of your contemporaries, uh, when Brianna Joy Gray and Robbie Suave argue this, which is about every other day nowadays, uh, Robbie Suave keeps saying, we have to uphold academic standards. She is the president of Harvard. Okay, there's an argument there. I'm not going to dispute that, but hey, Alan Dershowitz was the senior most uh, uh, faculty on Harvard Law School. That's not a trivial post. And for most Americans, he represented Harvard Law School because he had a very high public presence, uh, uh, salience. So why was a double standard upheld with Claudine Gay and Alan Dershowitz? I would also, because I said I would return to it earlier, there's a very strange thing about academia. It has its eccentricities, okay? So in academia, um, plagiarism is the equivalent in international law to genocide or in domestic law to pedophilia. It is like the supreme crime, plagiarism. But here's the funny thing, and this returns to the point I said where people criticized me, okay? So Alan Dershowitz writes this book called uh, The Case for Israel. Every word is, a, every substantive claim is a lie. From the author's name on the front to the last period at the end, okay? I spend about 300 pages documenting every lie in the book. Did anybody care? No. See, that's the oddity. If Christine Gay... Claudine. If Claudine Gay, if she had fabricated, falsified, misrepresented data, you know she <laughs> probably would have gotten a pass. It's like this plagiarism thing, like that's, you know, you know why plagiarism is such a big deal. Because every professor, the moment they see a book on a subject similar to their own, what's the first thing they do? They check the index for their name, then they check the bibliography to see if their book is listed, then they check the footnotes to see if their name, that's it, that's all, then the professor just, if their name's not there, they just discard the book. Everything is about getting credit. That's why the only thing I care about is plagiarism. Oh, she stole my idea. She stole my idea. But you can produce a book, which in the case of Alan Dershowitz's book, every word is a lie. From the author's name to the last word, nobody cares. Nobody cares. It counts for nothing in academia. Now, you might say that's a very sweeping statement by me. Fine. Read the book. I document quite a lot of outright falsifications, misrepresentations. Nobody gave a darn. Was the book reviewed anywhere? No. 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 Did I get any reviews of that book? You can tell because here's the paperback 
And the paperback in the back, it's only those statements that were made by the people who originally blurbed the book when it was a hardcover. So that means they didn't get any reviews. You should Nothing. reissue it. Now you've, you're, I bet it would uh, have a, better, a bigger impact now. I don't really care. I, um, so the, the whole thing is, you know, to listen to this guy. You know why Alan Dershowitz is such a great lawyer? Why? Because Alan Dershowitz has the capacity, and I'm not being facetious here. People often think I'm making jokes, and I'm not. He has this remarkable capacity of simultaneously, simultaneously, knowing that every single statement he makes is a lie and at the same time absolutely believing everything he says. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. He absolutely believes what he's saying. But at the same time, you see, because if you're a lawyer, you have two main uh, tasks. One task is you have to maintain rational control over your case. You have to know where the weaknesses are. You have to know where the strengths are. You have to know how to present the material. You have to have rational control over your case. But at the same time, you have to convince the jury. And then to convince the jury, you have to completely believe every lie you're saying has to you have to believe it and so when you take those two tasks alan dershowitz has the remarkable capacity of doing both simultaneously he has total control over the case he knows the case he knows the material he knows the law for sure no question i don't i've never dispute that and he knows his client is guilty is guilty as sin he knows it, but he absolutely believes he's not. He does. I, I, I'll tell you, I was a young man then, not young, but I was younger when I debated him in 2003, so it's over two decades ago. I was actually just, I was in awe and disgust. He was just saying, one lie after another, I knew there were lies. And with, you would think he completely believed it. And actually, he did. <laughs> there were complete lies, and he completely believed what he was saying. We actually have a clip of that. Let's show this short clip from that debate on Democracy Now! I will give $10,000 to the PLO in your name if you can find a historical fact in my book that you can prove to be false. I issue that challenge. I issue it to you. I issue it to the Palestinian Authority. I issue it to Noam Chomsky. I issue it to Ed Saeed. Every well, that, word that, in my very, book very is sweetly. accurate, and you can't just simply say it's false without documenting it. Tell me one thing in the book now that is false. On page 80 of your book, you write, according to Benny Morris, between April and June... Benny Morris being an Israeli. Sorry. 
Julian. I have a copy of his book here, which right. I'll hold up. Right. Two to three thousand Palestinians were made refugees during the second stage of the flight. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm looking at page 256 of Benny Morris's book, Righteous Victims, right. A History of the Zionist Arab Conflict. Altogether, about two to three hundred thousand Arabs fled their homes during the second stage the of the exodus. The difference between two and three thousand and two and three hundred thousand. Now, you could check this many times, Mr. Dershowitz, but you're really going to have to pay the ten thousand no, dollars. No, no. Did he ever pay? Can you get blood from a stone? That's not, yeah. Wow. Well, this is actually a, a perfect transition. Is um, Let's go to this tweet by Axios, uh, Axios journalist uh, Barack Ravid, because he had uh, an announcement. Um, do we not have that? I can just read it if we don't. Okay, well, according to journalist, Axios journalist Barack Ravid, uh, ben Benjamin Netanyahu wants Alan Dershowitz to represent Israel uh, in its case, uh, in its genocide case. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I was, this morning when I discussed it with my friends, Jamie Sternweiner, colleagues, comrades, we almost all thought it was a joke. These people live in such a bubble, this Jewish supremacist bubble, that they don't see that Alan Dershowitz is, is not taken seriously anymore. He's an object of complete ridicule. Why would you even do that? If you watch the recent interviews he did, he did a, an amusing one with um, this Qatari uh, interlocutor. And he said, Alan Dershowitz said, Universe, uh, UNICEF is Hamas. UNESCO is Hamas. The climate movement is Hamas. And he, Human Rights Watch is Hamas. And finally, the interlocutor, Qatari, he said, Professor Dershowitz, is there anything that's not Hamas? I mean, the man is, all right, he's older. I hope I can retain my lucidity when I'm his age. Otherwise, I beg and plead with my friends, Norm, stop. No, I, Alan Dershowitz obviously has no friends because they would have told him, Al, your day has passed. <laughs> so why would they choose him? Actually, somebody tweeted, uh, I was sent it. I don't look at tweets. I don't know anything about it. I was sent it. Somebody tweeted, if Alan Dershowitz is representing Israel, then Norman Finkelstein should represent South Africa. <laughs> Actually, I have to say, I would get a good laugh out of that. But they have very competent people. There's John Dugard, who apparently played a big role in writing the um, South Africa genocide brief. Uh, there's another guy, Vaughn Lowe, who's excellent. No, they have good people. Why they would uh, choose Dershowitz is beyond me. Actually, they do have, there's um, Yoram Dinstein, and there are others who, I don't like their politics, but they certainly can make a compelling case before the court. I think on its merits, uh, uh, at this point, what the 
South Africans are asking for, for I should be clear, they're, uh, they're uh, calling for the International Court of Justice, not the International Criminal Court. They're calling on the international justice to issue effectively what we call in our society a temporary restraining order. That is to say, they assembled a, they said, if I can explain for your audience, there is a genocide convention. Israel is a signatory to that convention. South Africa is a signatory to that convention. And South Africa is saying that Israel is guilty of genocide. It's in breach of the convention. Israel says it's not in breach of the convention. And therefore, that constitutes what's called a dispute under international law. And that being a dispute, the International Court of Justice, which uh, can arbitrate on disputes pertaining to international conventions, as is the genocide, genovi, uh, excuse me, genocide convention, the International Court of Justice can decide who's right and who's wrong in this matter, in this dispute. Now, the, uh, the ICJ, or I take that back, South Africa wants to expedite the process because the genocide's happening before our eyes in real time. Uh, so they want to expedite the process. And the way you can expedite the process is to say, we, we are not asking for a final judgment by the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. We're not asking for a final judgment whether it is or isn't genocide. What we're asking for is something else. We're, we're asking that you acknowledge that we're making a plausible case for genocide and therefore, a if we can use the example, a temporary restraining order should be put on Israel until the whole case can be adjudicated. Uh, so that's their demand, and I think it's it's impossible to that. This morning I got an email from, I, I like to call my friend, I think it's fair, uh, John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, and he said he's been looking at this uh, South Africa brief for the past couple of days, and he said it's really quite impressive. <laughs> Absolutely. It was very well done. Yeah, you could see the handiwork of John Dugard in that brief. Uh, it's overwhelming. So on the merits, I would say, to use the language that's being used, they make a plausible case. But these things are never decided by the merits. They're not decided by the law. They're decided by politics. You can't get around it. And so what do you have now? The ICJ consists of 15 justices, or judges. They don't, uh, we use justice for our Supreme Court. They call them judges. There are 15 judges. The 15 judges comprise the Security Council and 10 other states. So, Russia, China, the US, the UK, and France, okay? the per five permanent members, they have representatives on the ICJ. 
So you think to yourself, oh, great. Okay, we lose with the U.S. for sure. We lose with the U.K. for sure. France is a question mark, given the statements it's been making about what's going on in Gaza. I would call it a question mark. Uh, and then we say, oh, great. We have one question mark, and then we have Russia and China. And you think, okay, we have Russia and China on our side. Well, Russia is now being challenged or accused of genocide in Ukraine. And that's a pending case in the ICC, the International Criminal Court. So do they want to open up the Pandora's box of that genocide convention, which might backfire and be used against them? Very unlikely. China. Well, as everybody knows, China is being accused of genocide against the Uyghurs. So do they want to open up the Pandora's box of the genocide convention and it's used against them? I would say very unlikely. So right now we have one of five, which is France, maybe, maybe. Then Germany's on this year. They'd vote for it. They'd be worse than Israel on it. They would vote for the genocide. Yeah. We agree it's genocide, but we're for it. Right, exactly. Then Uganda, which always votes with Israel, don't ask me why, it's on. So we have four, uh, probably will not vote for its plausibility. Then Germany, then Uganda, so that's six. Morocco is on. Morocco will vote, I think, yes. It's a plausible case. And a few others. It'll be very tough. They need eight votes. They need eight votes. If you want to bring it up now, are you in front of a screen? Uh, yeah. So just go International Court of Justice, Justice uh, ju- Judges Today. Judges Today. And we'll see which countries are up there. So the uh, current president, or current members, so America, forget, hopeless cause. Uh, Russian, I would say unlikely. Slovakia, maybe a yes. Slovakia, France, I would say 50-50. So we have two. Morocco, I say a yes. So we have three. Somalia, probably a yes. That will be four. Um. China, probably a no, or an abstention. Uganda, a no. Let's continue. Uh, India, well, since Modi's committing genocide against Muslims, I would say a no. And he's close with uh, Netanyahu. Right. Uh, Jamaica, maybe a yes. Maybe a yes. Lebanon, a yes. Japan is so terrified of the United States, I would call it a no. Germany, I would call a no. Australia, no, 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 no. Brazil, definitely a yes. Oh, so I, I you got, got seven? I got six and a half because we six don't know half. about friends. Okay. I would get seven. That would be my guess. Yeah. All we need is one to flip to reach eight. It's hard to get one to right. flip. But you've been obviously saying from the get-go that this is genocide, as have a lot of... I I had a very simple argument. It was so simple. 
sometimes, you know, the most obvious is also the most correct. What is it? Razor. Occam's razor. Occam's razor. If you say that you're not going to let any food, water, fuel, electricity into a civilian population, can you tell me what you're advocating? Genocide. That's not, to me, that's a no-brainer. You don't really need much more. I mean, obviously, if you read the brief, there's a lot more you can add to it. But to my thinking, that was uh, case closed, as they say. Yeah. Someone else that you wrote about on your Substack is Sam Harris um, and his appearance on Pierce Morgan. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. Bye.